All right. Well, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they'll be happy to get one into your hands. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, and I'll meet you there shortly. We're studying Revelation, of course, and we're wrapping up a mini-series this weekend on the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon, the battle at the end of the Great Tribulation between those who oppose God and those who follow Him. That's the Battle of Armageddon. And we found in parts 1 and 2 that it's a real battle in real places all over the world, though some people are wanting to spiritualize the battle of Armageddon and say, well, it's, it's not really a real thing. It's just the, the triumph of good over evil or the triumph of God over sin. And for sure, those things are true. But indeed, it is also real. It is also tangible. If the return of Jesus is real, why isn't the battle real? If the Antichrist and the false prophet who are referred to in this passage in the battle of Armageddon are real, why isn't the battle itself real? If their demise is real, why isn't the battle real? And the list goes on and on. And so I don't think it's right to spiritualize it and kind of put it in some sort of a nebulous uh, deal just because we don't like some of the stark graphic realities of it. Better to let the Word of God speak. Better to let it arrest our soul. Better that we would awaken from our slumber and live in light of the reality. Amen? It's a real battle in real places. Second, it starts with the return of Christ, we found. Third, it's the ultimate day of the Lord in Scripture, the ultimate time of God's judgment, that is, referred to over and over again. And number four, it's prophesied extensively in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament thing. It's certainly not just a Revelation thing. It's all over the Bible, and we're going to see that even more in our time in this particular sermon. So four facts, parts one and two that are meant to solidify our expectations and awaken us from our slumber. Which brings us then to part three and four more truths, starting with this. It's fought and won by Jesus. The battle of Armageddon is fought and won by Jesus. I've been trying not to say that, but couldn't help it in the past couple of weeks. Thankful that now I can just say it outright. It's fought and won by Jesus. In other words, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. If you remember nothing else from this message, remember that Jesus wins the battle of Armageddon. There we go. There we go. You see, there's not only victory in Jesus like that old hymn says. You familiar with that? Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. There's not only victory in Jesus, there's victory by Jesus. He wins the battle of Armageddon. And mind you, if you're a little bit doubtful about some of this still, this is not some premature headline. Like the Chicago Daily Tribune prematurely printed the triumph of Dewey over Truman in 1948. You familiar with that? A couple of you? Maybe just a few of you. Thank you. Thank you. Real, real thing. We don't have a President Dewey, all right, just to get that out there. We don't have President Dewey. But the Chicago Daily Tribune, 
And the night of the election, November 2nd, 1948, wanting to get the newspaper printed, because it took a long time in those days, so that they could beat the opposition, and they could hand it out and sell it, you know, and, and make all kinds of money. And they thought that they would make the call. They did so prematurely. They got it wrong. And the next morning, they had egg on their face, especially with Truman holding up the very newspaper. So good. It was a premature headline. Calling the election before the votes were in. A premature prophecy. But oh, for the days when elections were determined overnight, huh? A premature headline, Armageddon isn't. If you've been kind of doubtful along these lines, a premature headline, it is not. It's decided. It's sure. Jesus wins. Had a little fun with that. He wins. Like you can, you can make the call. You can send the tweet. Uh, you, you can start the presses. Like he fights the battle and he wins the battle. Full stop. Jesus wins. I say fights because the second part of verse 11, check it out. It says, in righteousness, he judges, that's he, Jesus, judges and makes war. That is, initiates the attack. Jesus does. He makes war. He engages the fight. Far from Napoleon at Battle of Waterloo, if you're familiar with that at all. I've mentioned that before. I love some of that old history war stuff. Far from Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, who sat in the back under his tent lounging, literally. No wonder he saw his demise. Far from that, Jesus leads the charge at the Battle of Armageddon. It's no Waterloo for him. It's fought by Jesus. And it's won by Jesus. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It's one. Strike down the nations. And he will tread them. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That is an, an unbending, overwhelming authority. He wins, hands down. And it's repeated in verse 21. Check that out. It says, and the rest, that is, in addition to the beast and the false prophet, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Put those three verses together, 11, 15, and 21, and Jesus will both fight the battle of Armageddon and he will win the battle of Armageddon, conquering and subduing those who remain with a rod of iron. Jesus wins. Jesus fights and Jesus wins. It's confirmation of David's prophecy, King David, in Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6. Speaking to God the Father, he says, The Lord, and notice that's capital L, small, small O-R-D, as opposed to all caps, the tetragrammaton that refers to Yahweh, God the Father. He says, The Lord, referring to the Messiah, a thousand years before Jesus showed up, the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, is at your right hand. He's speaking to God the Father. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He, Jesus, the 
coming Messiah from David's perspective, the one who's returning from ours. He will fight and he will win the battle of Armageddon. Jesus will. And only Jesus. So important that you grasp this. It's fought and won by Jesus and only Jesus, the battle of Armageddon. We will be present, but he does the fighting. We will be present, but he does the conquering. We will be present, but the victory is his. It's just like the angel said in Revelation 17, 14, foreshadowing this battle of Armageddon. He said that when the beast gathers the kings of the earth, when the Antichrist gathers the kings of the earth, they will make war on the lamb, Jesus, and the lamb will, here it is, conquer them, fight and win. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful, referring to us, the church. We will be present. We will be with him. But he does the fighting. The lamb will conquer them, period. Which means that all our guns and all our ammunition will be useless at that point. True. They may be helpful in the great tribulation or the days leading up to it, for self-defense or defense of the common good. But at the battle of Armageddon, they're moot because that's fought and won by Jesus and only Jesus. There's simply no mention of the glorified church taking up arms. None. None. In fact, it's glaringly absent. You would think that if we were going to be a part of the battle, if we were actually the glorified church, if we were going to be a part of it, you would think there would be some mention of us doing something. It's glaringly absent. And it's glaringly absent for a reason. It's because Jesus is the one who's doing something. And Jesus only. Not only that, but the guns and the bombs and the lasers and whatever other kind of mass weapons of destruction that we manufacture, already have, and will before Jesus returns, like those things are going to be passe for Jesus as well. He's going to fight and win the battle of Armageddon with words. Only Jesus and with words. He's going to fight and win by speaking. He's going to fight and win by making pronouncements of judgment as it says there in the passage, with, he judges and makes war. And he's going to do so with the words of his mouth. Words like, you're done, you're doomed, you're out, you're defeated. I, I don't know. Or maybe it's going to be just one word, one pronouncement, like you're condemned. Yeah, applying to everybody in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, so that the battle is essentially over before it even starts. If we don't fight in the battle, the battle isn't going to start until Jesus chooses. And when Jesus begins to fight, it's going to be with a word. And in that word, all the nations of the world will be utterly and completely defeated. It's just like Martin Luther in that old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Maybe you're familiar with it. Where he, in speaking of Satan, he says, one little word shall fell him. One little word shall defeat him. 
We know that that's true of the scriptures. And we know that if that's true of Satan, it's certainly true of people. That one little word from the mouth of the Son of God, the living God, one little word shall fell us. Either way, whether it's one pronouncement or multiple, multiple pronouncements, it's words from his mouth that are going to do it. That's the idea of a sharp sword. You see it there in verse 15? A sharp sword will come from his mouth. As I've said before, not intended to paint a picture for us, but actually provide a description in this case, a description of the power of his words. It's just like Isaiah said so many years before. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And so the rod or sword in the mouth of Jesus is his words to kill and destroy. That's what it says. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. His words are that powerful. You see, just like the written word of God pierces the soul and spirit, a la Hebrews 4, 12, just like the written word of God pierces the soul and spirit, so does the spoken word. Only in this case, at the battle of Armageddon, on the part of Jesus, it's not going to be his spoken word to convict and heal. It's going to be his spoken word to condemn and kill. Stark, graphic realities so stark and so graphic that many people, many pastors think, you just can't preach this. You can't say it. Yes, the Bible says it. They would say, yes, yes, yes. But you can't say this to people. It'll be offensive. Like it will offend their sensibilities. You might offend them and they might never come back. Oh, how I would much rather risk that if that's you, if that offends your sensibilities that the word of God is going to kill the wicked. If that, if I'd much rather that it offends you now so that you're on the right side of the battle then rather than vice versa. It's the word of God and we must let the word of God speak and if that defies and offends your sensibilities, so be it. Align your sensibilities with the Lord. Don't force the Lord to align with your sensibilities. All of which means, with Jesus fighting and winning the battle of Armageddon with his words, all of which means that the outcome is certain. He'll do so with words and he'll do it with certainty. With certainty. Because victory is not in question. How could it be? I mean, it's already decided. It's a foregone conclusion. The Bible says so. And, and in addition to that, given the description of Jesus here in verses 11 to 16, how could it be otherwise? It couldn't. It couldn't. The outcome couldn't be anything but certain. Because first of all, he's the victorious one. He's the victorious one. Eleven characteristics here that I'm going to rifle through fairly quickly. Eleven characteristics of Jesus that make the battle of Armageddon and its outcome certain. Starting in verse 11 with the white horse. You see it there? He rides a white horse. In apocalyptic literature, a white horse symbolized victory. Plain and simple. And the one who rides it, therefore, victorious. Which means that the outcome is certain. Second, he's the faithful one. 
the faithful one. Verse 11 again, the one sitting on the horse is called faithful. We're going to run into several names for Jesus here. This is one of the first. He's called faithful, faithful to come and faithful to conquer, Jesus is. He's faithful to return and he's faithful to vanquish. And therefore the outcome is certain. Third, he's the reliable one. He's the victorious one, he's the faithful one, he's the reliable one. Faithful and true, it says there in verse 11. That is true to his promises, thank God. True to his word. Reliable to carry it out, to, to make good on it. Including all of the Old Testament prophecies about this battle. The outcome is certain because Jesus is reliable. Perfectly so. Fourth, he's the righteous one. He's the righteous one. Second part of verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Perfectly just and perfectly holy. Which means he not only gives people only what they deserve as judge and jury, but he gives people everything they deserve. The righteousness of Jesus ensures that he gives every single person on the face of the earth only what they deserve and everything that they deserve. You say, well, what about us? What about those who confess him as Lord and Savior? Those of us who have repented of our sin and, and follow him and put our faith and trust in him. Like, do we get everything that we deserve? No, thank God, because he stepped in in our place himself and took what we deserve. But he's still righteous in doing so. He demands payment for all of our sin, requires it because of his righteousness. But in our case, when we put our faith and trust in him, he takes all of that punishment on himself. Everything that we deserve on him. But short of that, Short of faith and repentance, you're left to receive all that you deserve yourself. The outcome is certain because he's the righteous one. Fifth, he's the omniscient one. He's the omniscient one. That is the all-knowing one. Verse 12 says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. See it there? A flame of fire. That is, they're piercing and discerning. Jesus is piercing and discerning. Piercing all the way to our soul. Knowing the thoughts and motives of those who oppose him before they even act. Can you imagine the certainty of a battle if a general knew the thoughts and motives of the other generals before they even acted on them? I mean, that's why we have espionage. Has for, have for centuries upon centuries and will continue until the Lord returns. Espionage in order to figure out what the motives and actions of the opponent are. There's no espionage with Jesus. He knows everything that he needs to know, which is every single thing. And that makes the outcome certain. Number six, he's the ruling one. He's the ruling one, the ruler of the universe that is. On his head, verse 12, are many 
diadems. We don't use that word very often. It simply means crowns. On his head are many crowns. Once again, not intended to be a picture. That would be so bizarre where he would be wearing like who knows how many thousands of millions of different crowns. It means it, it's meant to describe rather that he is the ruler over all. Whether seen or unseen forces, kingdoms, nations, kings, and all the rest. He's the ruling one, and it makes his victory certain. Number seven, he's the mysterious one. Second part of verse 12, he's the mysterious one. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. It's mysterious. It's mysterious. We just don't know. No idea. Which adds to the certainty of his victory because he is so transcendent. He is so other than us. He is so above and beyond us. We don't even know anything. And all, or we do know some things, but we don't know everything about him. He's transcendent. He's other. He's literally out of this world. Which makes his victory all the more certain. He's the mysterious one. Number eight, he's the avenging one. The avenging one, that is the one who takes out vengeance, the one who exacts vengeance. The one, verse 13, check it out there, who is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. A robe dipped in blood, which could refer to his own blood as the crucified one, but probably refers to the blood of his enemies. Probably refers to the blood of his enemies. Given the context of a battle and the imagery of treading out the winepress of God's wrath in verse 15, the blood is most likely that of the nations. Once again, graphic and explicit, symbolizing the blood of the nations and their judgment. Look at the second part of verse 15. He will tread, this is the context here, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You need to know I had a picture of this up when we first ran into this in Revelation, that a wine press in days of old was this kind of large square stone structure, sometimes put together with very tight stones, sometimes loose, but the stone structure had a slight slope to it and a hole at the very end, and they would pour in all the grapes from the grape harvest, and then someone would literally, with bare feet, begin to tread out the grapes with the blood of the grapes splattering up on the robe, as you can imagine, and the blood flowing. It's a graphic image meant to convey that judgment awaits those on the wrong side of the battle. Jesus will take the lives of those who reject God and oppose his people. That is, he'll execute vengeance. It's a picture in prophecy first written in Isaiah 63, verses 2 to 6, talking to a future Messiah in a prophetic vision of sorts. Isaiah asks him, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress. Isaiah is, is speaking in this prophetic vision. He's asking the, the coming Messiah, who we know is Jesus. Why, why, why is that? And the Messiah answers, verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, 
and from the peoples, that is, the nations, his enemies, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. That is his time for saving us. It, it, it had come. He's speaking about this something future, the Battle of Armageddon, speaking about it in past tense, once again emphasizing the certainty of it. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, the Messiah says. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. What Isaiah prophesied, John sees Jesus about to do at the Battle of Armageddon. Judging those who oppose God and avenging their rebellion with the wrath of God. Loved one, if you are in a state of rebellion against the Son of the living God, now is the time to make that right and get that right. Now is the time to bend your knee. Now is the time to give up your thing for his thing. Because if you don't, death of the worst sort awaits. One little word shall fell them. It's the eighth characteristic that ensures victory. He's the avenging one. Number nine, he's the authoritative one. He's the authoritative one. From the second part of verse 13, the name by which he is called is the word of God. The word of God conveying the fact that Jesus is the authoritative expression of God's divine will. That's what the word of God means. The authoritative expression of God's divine will. In this case, his will to judge the nations. You see, names in the ancient Near East, far more than now, it's hardly the case at all, at least in our particular culture, still is the case in some cultures around the world, but names back then were intended to convey the essence of the person carrying the name. And that's certainly no less true of Jesus. Called the Word of God, we are being told that he is the essence of God's divine expression to judge the nations, which makes him the authoritative one and the outcome of the battle all but certain. Number 10, he's the powerful one. The powerful one. Verse 15 again, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, a sharp one with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Same in verse 21. That's power, making the outcome certain. And then last but not least, number 11, he's the mighty one. The mighty one. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's kind of the proof text for everybody who loves tattoos. Right, right there. Jesus had a tattoo, they'll say. Well, maybe, maybe. But probably the idea there of on his robe and on his thigh indicates two it doesn't indicate two different places, but rather probably indicates that it's one name in the same place. One name written on his robe that lays on his thigh as he sits on the 
horse. Remember John seeing this vision. Probably that's the case. If you want to use it as a proof text for a tattoo, go ahead. But the point here is that he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's the point. Praise the Lord for that label. That we get to utter that and we get to know that over and over and over again. And it will be the case for all eternity. King of kings, Lord of lords, as we bow the knee and bend the knee as we rejoice in his presence. And king of kings as in not just king and lord, not just master of, of the lowly among us, but master and lord and king of those high among us. Other kings, other lords, they don't hold a candle to the king. They don't hold a candle to the Lord. It's an expression of his mightiness, his supremeness. Not just ruler and master of the lowly, but ruler and master of all. And it's the 11th characteristic that leads us to the conclusion that the battle of Armageddon will be fought and won by Jesus with absolute certainty. Hallelujah! It's fact number five. Number six, it's witnessed by the church. It's witnessed by the church, the battle of Armageddon. Look at verse 14. After describing Jesus on a white horse coming from heaven, John says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. Now, at first glance, you might think that the armies of heaven refer to angels. It wouldn't be a, like an you know, off-the-wall assumption. But because of their clothing here, they're identified as saints, believers, the church, the glorified church, because fine linen, white and pure, do you see it there in verse 14? Fine linen, white and pure, is nearly identical verbiage with the exact same meaning as that used of the bride in verse 8. Check it out there in your Bible, in verse 8. It says, it was granted her, referring to the bride, the church, from verse 7. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The fine linen represents the righteous deeds of those wearing it, namely the church, the bride, believers. And so in verse 14, those arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, same idea, must also be the saints, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Which means the armies of heaven refer to us. Following him, as it says, to witness the battle of Armageddon, but not fight it. Following him to observe it, but not engage in it. Jesus is going to do that for us. It's the ultimate example and fulfillment, I think, of Psalm 37, 34, where it says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. Hold fast. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, the earth. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. 
It was true in days of old, and it's true in days ahead. We're going to be there for the Battle of Armageddon, but we're only going to watch. We're only going to witness it. We're going to see and know beyond a shadow of a doubt if there was any remaining shadow, which there won't be, glorified bodies that we will already have. We're going to watch and we're going to see that indeed Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's the sixth fact. Number seven, it leads, the battle of Armageddon does, to the capture and torment of the beast and false prophet. It leads to the capture and torment of the beast and false prophet. You see, after first talking about the result of the battle in verses 17 and 18, John then describes how it starts in verse 19. He, he, he starts at the end, if you will, the end of the battle. So he's like, this is, this is what it's going to be like. This is the result. And then he goes back and tells us about the beginning of the battle. Verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Just as a quick aside here, this implies that the world thinks that they're going to get a twofer. This implies that the world thinks they're going to fight and win against Jesus and us. Two birds with one stone. Two for one. When in fact, they're really only going to fight against Jesus. And it's going to be over as soon as it starts. But the point here is that they gather the kings of the army. Verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs, remember that, the signs, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Remember those signs that the false prophet from Revelation 13 where he would call down, it says he will call down fire from heaven in front of people and because of that they will be deceived into worshiping the Antichrist, the, the one that the false prophet supports and points people to. I mean, you can see how it, how it would happen if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, if you don't know ahead of time like what's going down with all of this, you might be inclined to worship somebody who could cause such phenomena, such supernatural, such demonically inspired, Satan-imbued stuff like that. You could see it. The false prophet's going to do it. In addition to that, he's going to make the image of the Antichrist, the image of the beast, speak Revelation 13. And so more and more people will get the mark of the beast as an indicator of both their allegiance and their worship. And John tells us here that there's going to be consequences for that. Consequences for such deception on the part of so many. These two, last part of verse 20, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Because of their deception and evil, they're taken alive and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. What the rest of the Bible calls hell. Some people try to 
kind of parse it out and say that the lake of fire is different than Hades and Hades is different than hell and hell different than the lake of fire and so on. I don't think so. I think there's one place of conscious, eternal torment and punishment. A lake of fire called by different names, but the very same place, no less. And indeed, it's going to be a place of immense suffering because it burns with sulfur, John says, a substance that is extremely hot. It burns at room temperature and it's terrible to smell, so much so that it actually burns your nostrils and can burn your lungs if you inhale so much of it, inflicting pain on the inside just as it inflicts pain on the outside, lake of fire as it is, not just burning on the surface, but all throughout, if you can imagine it. If you've ever been near a vent of an active volcano, you know what I'm talking about. The last time Becky and I were in Hawaii, we went to the Big Island and we visited one of those active volcanoes and it's a national park. And you can see as you're kind of starting to drive through there, you can see these vents that are coming up out of the middle of nowhere. You know, over here to the left is this massive, massive lava lake, sometimes more active than others. But you got these vents here and there, and a few of them, they kind of have marked out for you. And you can walk up, and you can feel the heat coming out of the vent, and you're about three-quarters of a mile away from the lake of lava. And I went up and put my head over it. I began to feel the heat, and in that moment, I took a breath. Bad move. Because it stung the inside of my nostrils because it's the sulfur smell. In fact, the lava bowl of a volcano is a fitting picture of a lake of fire. All of which implies conscious physical torment of the worst sort. Conscious because they were taken alive and thrown alive. It's conscious physical torment in the lake of fire of the worst sort. And indeed, it's the fate that, the fate that all unbelievers will suffer, as we'll see in Revelation 20. But the beast and the false prophet lead the way because of their graphic and grotesque deception of the nations of the world. Fact number seven. And then last, fact number eight, the battle of Armageddon ends with the death and desecration of those in opposition. It ends with the death and desecration of those in opposition. Verse 17 then I saw an angel, John says, standing in the sun, a place of prominence, especially with respect to the birds, standing in the sun and with a loud voice, this angel called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. The great supper of God no doubt intended to be a play on words with the marriage supper of the lamb from verse 9. One joyful, the marriage supper of the lamb, the other terrible and heinous, the supper of God. Come, the angel says, gather for the great supper of God. Verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
There's no escaping it. The battle of Armageddon, if you're on the wrong side of it, there's no escaping it. Jesus describes the outcome of the battle first, and then he describes the battle itself in 19 and 20, and then he comes back to the outcome in verse 21. Check it out one more time. And the rest, that is in addition to the beast and the false prophet, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a bookend, verse 21 is, with verse 17. Two bookends of death and desecration. Two bookends of death and dishonor. Two bookends of death and defilement. Unburied, unburied, and eaten by animals. One of the worst dishonors, one of the worst desecrations in cultures throughout the earth and even in our own. Eaten by animals and filthy birds at that. No one's exempt. No one's exempt. From those on the lowest rung of society to the highest, as it said, small and great. Like if you're on the battlefield, you're doomed. Every single one. Not every single person on earth, but every single person actively opposed. Opposed to Jesus and his church. That's what all men in verse 18 has to mean. It can't mean every single person on the face of the earth. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anyone left to rule with a rod of iron, verse 15. Nor would there be anyone left to rule and reign in the millennium, which follows immediately on the heels of the battle of Armageddon, as we find in chapter 20. All men means all those who oppose Jesus and his followers. It's fact number eight that the battle of Armageddon ends with the death and desecration of people like that. A real battle in real places with real people who suffer real loss. So whatever you do, whatever you do, hold fast, persevere, keep the faith and Last but not least, rest assured. Rest assured because in the end, in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for that fact. We're so thankful for that certainty. We're so thankful for that blessed assurance. Oh God, how we praise you for your promises. How we praise you for your power, your assurance, your righteousness, and your victory, God. Spur us on, we pray, to live accordingly. Oh, God, awaken us from our slumber. Assure our hearts. Remove our doubts. Knowing that the battle belongs to you, and so do we. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.